All right. Well, good morning, church. I invite you to go ahead and open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And preschoolers, we will see you a little bit later. You are dismissed. So There is a story told long ago of a Chinese man who lived on the border of China and Mongolia. And in those days, there was constant conflict going on at the border between these two nations, and the man lived very close to the border, and one day he had this wonderful, majestic horse, his prized possession, that one day leapt over the fence, raced down the road, crossed the border, and was captured by the Mongolian army. His friends came to comfort him and said, that's bad news. That's bad news, friend. Sorry to hear that. The man said, what makes you think it's bad news? Maybe it's good news. A few days later, the horse returns with an even greater horse with it. A massive wild stallion has now become the man's horse as well. And his friends gathered round and said, that's good news. The man says, what makes you think it's good news? Maybe it's bad news. Later, his son was riding that new horse and was thrown off and broke his leg. His friends once again gathered and said, that's bad news. The man, if you catch where this is going, he said, why do you say it's bad news? Maybe it's good news. One week later, war breaks out with Mongolia, and the Chinese general comes through town and drafts all the able-bodied young men, all of which who would later perish in battle, except for the young man who had broken his leg. And the man finally calls all his friends together and says, you see, the things you thought were bad turned out good, and the things you thought were good turned out bad. And I share that story with you this morning because, you see, as human beings, we have such a limited view and perspective of things, don't we? And we oftentimes can't see God's gracious providence working in both the good things and the bad things. We oftentimes look at our lives and we think, God, why would you do this? God, why would you allow this? God, why is evil still allowed in your world? God, we know you are good, but, but what gives? And we look at the pages of our lives, and it looks to us like those 3D stereograms, or you remember those magic eye books from the 90s where you stare at this page, and it just looks like a jumbled mess of nothing, But then after a while, you can start to see a three-dimensional image appear. But you have to be taught how to look at these in these books, right, in order to see it. You you know, you have to be coached to maybe cross your eyes and bring it close to your face and then further away. You have to try to stare through it, and then you'll see this image that starts to appear, And in a similar way, it is sometimes difficult to see God's grace in our lives in the midst of suffering or groaning, isn't it? It's difficult to always see it. But there's a deeper truth at work in our two-dimensional lives. C.S. Lewis described it in his Narnia books as a deeper magic that existed before the dawn of time that the evil witch knew nothing about. Church, when we consider God's providence, it is like this deeper truth that even the enemy himself knows nothing about. It's the three-dimensional object that you can only see in a two-dimensional world when you look at it the right way. And this morning, these verses that we have come upon in the book of Romans help us look at life the right way. The last couple of sermons, we've, as we've been preaching through the books, book of Romans, the last couple, we've been talking about how we all groan for glory. We long for the glorious day that Christ's kingdom will be fully realized here on earth. 
We long for the day of our resurrection, where we'll be given resurrected bodies. We long for the day when the presence of sin in our lives will be completely done away with. We are groaning and longing for glory. But this morning, we get to see God's gracious providence in how he turns our groans into glory. How our groaning and suffering actually become our glory. They work together for our good. We've come upon probably some of the most glorious verses in all of Scripture. And these verses will be the key to helping us see God's grace in all circumstances and throughout all of history. These verses will also help us see God's grace throughout all of Romans 9 and Romans 10 and Romans 11 as we get to those passages. Because you see, in these verses, in these verses this morning, God gives us a powerful promise and his unbreakable plan. We have this morning a powerful promise and an unbreakable plan, and it's in knowing and believing this powerful promise and unbreakable plan that you will be able to look at anything in your life and in your world, and although on the surface it looks like a mess, with knowing and believing this powerful promise and unbreakable plan, you will be able to see God's gracious providence start to take form. And I'm telling you, once you see it, it's hard to see anything else. And it will be the greatest comfort to you in life and in death. And you will know for certain that God will graciously turn your groans into glory. So that's where we're growing. Let's pray, and we will jump into the passage. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these deep truths today that somewhat at times seem mysterious to us. We can't quite get our minds fully around them, but we know that you are good and you are gracious and you are merciful. And so, Father, I ask that you would help us primarily not try to master your word this morning, but that your word would would master us, that you would capture our hearts, that you would captivate us, God, with your glory and your grace. I ask that you would attend your word with power, that you'd give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to believe. Teach us and transform us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, look with me now at Romans 8, verse 28. Romans 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Look at how verse 28 starts out. And we know. There's a lot, church, that we do not know. There's a lot that God hasn't revealed to us. But this is one of the things we know, and we know. This promise and plan that we are talking about this morning are things that we can know. God wants us to know this and believe this. The question is, do you know this? And do you believe this? Every Christian must know this church if they are to persevere to glory. This is a glorious and powerful promise, church. Look at this promise that God wants us to know. For those who love God, all things work together for good. Now here's the shocking part of the promise. He says all things instead of some things. I mean, I can get my mind around some things working together for good. But he says all things. All things. All things, church. Now, notice he doesn't say that all things are good, okay? He doesn't say all things are good, but he says that all things work together for good. That word work together in the Greek, it's a word from which we get our English word synergy. 
meaning that God brings together all things, both good and evil, difficult things and comfortable things, righteous things and unrighteous things, and he has the ability to synergistically work them together for our ultimate good. And this word work together, it's written in the present tense with an active voice. And what that means is that our Heavenly Father is continually working all things together for our good, church. Our Father is continually working all things together for our good. All things. This promise that we have here from God, it's helping us to start to see the providence of God in our world. The, the deeper truth or this third dimension can start to be seen in the messiness of life with this promise. Now, when I'm talking about the providence of God, I'm talking about God's gracious oversight of the universe. All right, that'll be the working definition we proceed with here this morning, the providence of God, God's gracious oversight of the universe. But really, the doctrine of God's providence is a combination of four other doctrines and truths. And those are, first, his sovereignty, that he is in control. It also includes the doctrine of predestination, that he is in charge of how everything turns out. He has foreordained things and the means to those things, and we will talk more about this later this morning. God's providence includes his wisdom, that he makes no mistakes. And it includes his goodness, that he has our best interests at heart. And a side note is, if you are currently struggling with sinful fear or anxiety, you are likely struggling to believe one of these four pillars of God's providence, God's gracious oversight of the universe. What, a great, what great comfort and courage come to us when we believe these truths about God and we trust in his providence. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 29 and 30, he says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Now, I realize for some of you that's not that impressive of a thing. I didn't mean to make eye contact there, but... You know who you are. It's, but to, to many of us, that is an impressive thing. That, that the hairs of your head are all numbered. That, that no two sparrows that will, will, will fall to the ground without the Father's providence. The providence of God starts to come into view somewhat when we believe this powerful promise that he can and he does work all things together for our good. And the power of this promise, it really hit me this week when I was thinking about my own life and what it meant for my own family and extended family. There was a point in, in the sermon preparation where this, this truth that God can work and does work all things together for our good, there's, there's got to be a point where it becomes not just an academic intellectual thing, but, it, but you actually see it and feel it and experience this truth. And I'm thankful to God he gave me a moment this week where it really hit me how all things he was working together for my good. God doesn't just work through Sunday morning worship, city groups, and quiet times. God does not just work through snuggles and butterfly kisses, although he does work through those things. But he also works through some bad horrible, evil things as well. And he works them together for our good. And I have seen him work these things for my good. Let me just give you some of a few of the things the Lord brought to my mind, how he had worked through them for my good and my family's good. He has worked through financial strains. He's worked through loneliness and anxiety Lou Gehrig's disease, 
trisomy 13, miscarriages, injuries, accidents, divorces, single motherhood, pulmonary fibrosis, betrayals, slanders, lies, thefts, prideful arrogance, disappointments, car accidents, snowstorms, sicknesses, and weariness, to name a few. I know, church, and I have seen that God does work all things together for good for those who love him. Church, I look at my own family and my own family tree, and some might see a jumbled mess, but all I can start to see is God's gracious oversight, God's gracious providence, God working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Paul is not writing this to people with comfortable, cushy lives. He's writing this to Christians in Rome in the first century. In the next few verses, he will write about some of the things he's thinking about when he talks about all things. And you can look down in Romans 8.35. He's going to include some of these things. He'll say, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? When Paul writes all things, he is fully intending tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and sword being a part of the category of all things. In church, yes, we are groaning for glory, but the truth of these verses tells us that God is graciously and providentially turning our groans into our good. He's essentially turning our trials into our testimonies. That's God's grace to us. This is God's promise to us that he will take our trials and turn them into our testimonies of his glory and his grace. This means that there is no longer any purposeless pain that comes our way. There's no wasted trial or suffering that he leads us through. He is working all things together for our good and our trials that we are persevering through right here and right now will one day be our testimonies of his grace and his faithfulness and his goodness. Because when God brings you through trials, you are able to look back and say, wow, truly God was faithfully working all things together for my good. I didn't see it at the time, but I see it now. And you start pointing others to this glorious grace. Look at what God did. Look at what God did. And church, if God works all things together for our good, then this changes how we see all things, doesn't it? If God works together, if God works all things together for our good, then this changes all things. And how we see it and view it. Now we look at our trials and we can start to see how God is working in them for his glory and our good. How he's making us more like Jesus. So let me ask you to pause for a moment this morning and think to yourself, prayerfully consider about how God has worked all things in your life together for your good. I'm sure there are still some things that you haven't quite seen how God is working them for good. But you can rest assured that he is. He is. There are some things that might not ever make sense to us this side of heaven. But a lot will start to come into focus as we continue to follow the Lord. But what a comfort this is to us, this promise. What courage and strength and hope and optimism this gives us when we face painful and difficult circumstances. Every Christian must know this in order to not despair in this life where the effects of sin still remain, where evil is still allowed to operate. 
Every Christian must know this in order to not despair on this pilgrimage. The writers of the Heidelberg Catechism knew how important this promise was, and they included it in the first question, which catechisms, they were written to help parents and help teachers disciple the next generation to teach God's word in a memorable way. And the first question of this specific catechism asks, what is your only hope, or sorry, what is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer based on scripture is that I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who so preserves me that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head, yea, that all things must work together for my salvation. It's an important promise that Christians, we must know, we must believe, and we must pass on to our kids and those that we are discipling. Church, if you have sought for comfort in any other place than this, you will always be lacking real comfort. This is God's comfort that he has provided to you in Romans 8, 28, that all things must work together for your good and your salvation. We see the truth of this promise all throughout Scripture, but one of the more well-known examples of it is seen in the life of Joseph. Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers, which we could all say is not a good thing. Joseph is wrongly accused by Potiphar's wife and thrown into prison, which I think we could all say is not a good thing. Joseph is forgotten about in prison for a time by someone he helped, which we would all say is not a good thing. And yet God works all things together for the good as he puts Joseph in a position to provide for God's people through a famine, allowing them to be fruitful and multiply in the land. And a lot of the truth that we learn in that story of Joseph is summarized in Genesis fifty twenty, when he says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Oh, church, if God works all things together for our good, this changes all things for us. This changes how we see all things and view all things and follow Christ in all things. Doesn't this comfort us in our trials, knowing that someday they will be part of our testimonies? Now, practically speaking, this is a great truth to remind yourself when you are facing a trial, but let me give some helpful pastoral advice. This is not always the best thing to lead with right out of the, right out of the gate when comforting someone who is hurting. When the wound is fresh and when the suffering is sharp, that's not the time to come right away with, well, God's going to work all this together for good, okay? So just. It might be true, and it's a truth that needs to come at some point. And depending on the relationship you have with the person, you can use some wisdom and discernment, knowing when to share that truth. But typically, when the wound is fresh and the suffering is sharp, just love your brother or sister. Just be there with them. Comfort them. Pray with them. And yes, at some point, they knew, do need to be pointed to this tr truth sometime down the road. But this is a great truth that we can remind ourselves when we face a trial, when we face a hardship, when we groan for glory. We can remind ourselves and see that God is working all things together for our good. And if that is true, this changes how we see all things. Instead, we can look at things and see, man, how is God working here? How is he making more, me more like Christ? How is he helping me persevere to glory through this? But a question we must answer this morning is, is this promise for everyone? God's word says, no, it is, it is not. 
God's word tells us that this promise is for those who love God. Not just people who know about God or who go to church. This promise is for those who love God. This is for those who are called according to his purpose. This promise is for true Christians. Do you you love Jesus? That's, That's a defining element of our faith. Do you love the Lord? Do you love your brothers and sisters? This promise is for those who love God. This is not a promise that every single human being can claim. But a Christian can. Now why is that? And also, what is the good that we're talking about? Like that all things work together for good, what is the good? Is this, saying, is, this, is this the same thing as saying that all things work together for our comfort? Or that all things work together for our temporary pleasure? Or do all things work together for our physical health and wealth and popularity? It doesn't say that. That's not the promise. The promise is that all things work together for good. The question is, what is this good? And why can only Christians claim this promise? And that's all answered here in these next couple of verses as we see God's unbreakable plan for his people. Look with me at Romans 8, 29. For those, remember for, F-O-R, it's a, it's a term of explanation, explaining the preceding verse, all right, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This ultimate good that everything is working towards is our glorification in Christ. That's what everything in Romans 8 is longing for and looking towards when God reveals his glory to us and through us. And it is a glorification that comes about by us being conformed to the image of Christ. Which that really is what all this groaning for glory is all about for us as human beings. We are longing to be like Jesus. That's really what's going on as us as image bearers of God that's been distorted because of sin in our lives. We are longing to be like Jesus. We are longing to be free from sin and to be our true selves in Christ. We know that there is still so much about us that is not like him, but we are becoming more and more like him. And one day we will be glorified with him when we see him as he is. And so this is what the powerful promise is all about. For the believer, for the one who loves God, God works all things together in their life to make them more and more like Christ. He's working all things towards this glorious end. He doesn't promise to work all these things together for our comfort or for our temporary fleeting pleasure or for our health and our wealth and our prosperity. He promises to work all things together in our life to make us more and more like Christ, that we might persevere to glory. And it is as we are conformed to the image of Christ, and as we are freer and freer from the sin that once enslaved us, that is when we really become our true selves, where sin no longer distorts the image bearers of God that we were created to be. But the unbeliever cannot claim this promise because the circumstances that come their way can actually serve to harden their hearts towards God. But for those who love God, all things work together for good. But let's start at the beginning of this unbreakable plan, or some people have called this golden chain of salvation, where, where no part of it can be broken. Look with me at the start of this chain of events here in verse 29, where Paul says, for those whom he foreknew, foreknew. 
Now, here's where I believe some of us get off track in how we understand God and our, how our salvation fits into his unbreakable plan. And we can sometimes get off track with this word called foreknowledge. Some have wrongly taught, and I don't doubt that many of you have heard it taught this way at one point or another, that this is teaching that God at the beginning of time looked into the future and foresaw who would choose and trust him and who wouldn't. And he therefore predestined and called and justified and glorified those whom he knew beforehand would one day accept him. It sounds logical. There's some human reasoning there. But in this understanding, God is simply like a glorified fortune teller who can see the future. But our salvation is still very dependent upon our decision. And if you have believed that or thought of God in that way, listen, I love you. You are probably still a genuine Christian. I, I want to be charitable to your opinion. But I also want you to know that our God is way better and bigger than that. And if you'll hang with me for a few moments, I would like to give you two reasons why I do not believe that is a correct interpretation of this verse. The first reason is because of what we know elsewhere in Scripture about God. All throughout Scripture, we see that God does not reactively save us because of our merits and decisions. No, he proactively pursues us because of his mercy and grace. We see this all throughout the Scripture, that God is the initiator. We see in 1 John 4.19, I'm going to go through a few Scriptures really quickly. Jot them down. You don't have to turn there. 1 John 4.19, we see that we love because he first loved us. He is the initiator. He sets his affections on us first. Paul, who under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is writing this verse in Romans, he understood this in regards to his own life. Writing to the Galatians, in Galatians 1.15, he says, But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace. Paul teaches this same thing to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.9. When he says, who saved us and called us to a, whole call, a holy calling, not because of our works or some decision that he foresaw, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. It's how Luke understood the Gentiles coming to Christ in Acts 13, 48, when he said, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. What did Jesus teach his own disciples in John 15, 16? He said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Now, I'm not arguing the fact that we've all had a conversion experience where we've come to repent of sin and confess faith in Christ. We all have made meaningful decisions, hopefully, for Christ. Many of us have. What I'm saying is that in God's providence, he weaves together human decisions and his sovereignty in such a way that is weaved together this beautiful tapestry to where God is not just a fortune teller who can see into the future and then responds to our decisions. He's better and bigger than that. The way, so so he's, he's weaving these things together. And I realize some of this is, is, it's deep. It hurts my brain to think about. And I'd be happy to sit and talk for longer periods of time with, with those that would like to discuss this. But this way of interpreting foreknowledge, as far as God just being a looking into the future and seeing what we're going to decide, do not believe it's consistent with the rest of Scripture. But the other reason why we shouldn't interpret the word foreknowledge this way is because of the word itself. There's a textual reason here, the word itself. I, I would agree certainly with the full counsel of God's word that God is omniscient, that he is all-knowing. But this word foreknowledge is getting at something much better than that. You see, when this word is used of events taking place, it can have the meaning of knowing those events beforehand. But when it is used of foreknowing people, it carries a much more personal and relational connotation with it. 
And notice that that's what verse 29 does say. It says, it doesn't say for what he foreknew. It says for whom he did foreknow, right? The Hebrew understanding of knowing someone meant setting your affections upon them. Adam knew Eve and they had a child. It's more than just knowing facts about someone. Foreknowing someone to a Hebrew meant for loving them. And we see God starting in the Old Testament and all throughout the scriptures foreknowing and for loving a people. In Amos 3, verse 2, God says, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Now, does this mean that God didn't, he was oblivious to what else was going on in the families and nations of the earth, that he didn't know what was going on? No. This means that God had foreloved and known and set his affections on this people. He tells the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1.5, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. I didn't just know about you. I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And Jesus himself uses this idea of knowing people to describe what's going to sadly happen to those who will perish because of their sins in spite of doing some external things in his name. In Matthew 7, 22 and 23, some of the more sobering verses of the Bible where he says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. When God's word talks about knowing and foreknowing, there's a deeper, a personal, intimate, relational love there. And while this is admittedly a bit mind-blowing at first, it, it, it leaves us to the point where starting next week we'll be in verse 31 where Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? It, it, while it's mind-blowing at first, this is also a great and sweet comfort to us to know that our justification by faith was not some isolated incident that primarily depended upon us. No, it was a part of this glorious and gracious and unbreakable plan that God has for your life. He did not just know some things about you and therefore call you because he knew how you'd respond. No, even before you were born, God set his love upon you and it had nothing to do with the greatness of your decision making and it had everything to do with the greatness of his mercy and grace. That faith that you have in Christ Jesus is not some isolated event to be justified by faith, to trust in Jesus Christ, be declared righteous by, by him forgiving your sins and you receiving his righteousness, that was not just an, a, an isolated event. That wasn't just that one camp out night that you finally you know, trusted Christ. right? So, so many of us, we struggle with assurance of salvation because we're thinking back to this decision we made years and years ago. You know, what was I thinking? Did I make the right decision? Did I pray the right prayer? Did I say everything that I was supposed to say back then? Listen, your faith, it's not this isolated incident in your life. It's part of this greater plan. And you can look at this verse and you can look back in your past and see, no, God, before the foundations of the world, he had set his affections upon me. And this has led me now to my faith. And now I see that it's working all for glorification and the glory that is coming. You see, your faith is not this gift that you offer to God. It's not like your way of giving a gift to God. I'm going to put my faith in you. This is my gift for you. Your gift is, faith is not a gift for God. Faith is a gift from God to you. you. Many of you believe that a carpenter from Nazareth rose from the dead, and you believe his Roman crucifixion has eternal implications for you. Now, I'm not trying to talk anyone out of that. I believe it. But if you believe that, there's something supernatural that has happened there. 
And so it is your faith right now in this moment that gives you assurance of what has started long ago and what will continue on. Don't have to lose sleep tonight figuring out the decision you made at camp. Do you trust Jesus today? Do you love God today? If so, that is evidence of what has happened in you and to you. So why can Christians claim this promise? Well, look at the, how the chain continues. Because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. This is a word that makes some of us uncomfortable or gets us riled up, but it's in the Bible. So let's, let's talk about it. This is a word that means to foreordain or to appoint beforehand. Those who he foreknew or foreloved, he also foreordained to what? The text tells us to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he, speaking of Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. This has been foreordained to happen, church. Christ will be the firstborn among many brothers. God is not crossing his fingers in heaven, hoping that there will be a good few decisions for him. He's not wishing upon a star in the free will of man. No, what we have really learned in Romans is that where sin has increased, grace has superabounded. God has been so merciful and gracious and set his affections on a great multitude of people. He's not being stingy about this. He has set his affections on a great multitude of people from the north, east, south, west, from all nations of earth who have been predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And this will not just be a select few. This will be a vast multitude of people. But let me clarify this for you this morning. As I know, even as I say it, what stirs up in me. We must not mistake the doctrine of predestination with fatalism which is often the straw man that people want to fight against in pushing against the biblical doctrine of God appointing things beforehand. Fatalism is the wrong belief, all right? Fatalism, and it's not what I'm suggesting to you this morning, fatalism is the wrong belief that future events are fixed in such a way that human choices are irrelevant. What will be will be, and there is nothing that anyone can do about it. That is, that is fatalism, and that is not the doctrine of predestination. Charles Spurgeon, I believe, helps clarify this a bit. He says, we are no believers in fate. Right? That was a very pagan thought of this fatalistic thinking. We are no believers in fate, seeing that fate is, different, is a different doctrine altogether from predestination. Fate says that a thing is and must be, so it is decreed. But the true doctrine is God has appointed this and that, not because it must be, but because it is best that it should be. Fate is blind, but the destiny of Scripture is full of eyes. Fate is stern and has no tears for human sorrow, but the arrangements of providence are kind and good. Oh, please, church, please do not view God as this impersonal force who does this and that solely dependent upon our decisions as if he were a robot or machine. God has appointed this and that, not because it must be, but because it is best that it should be. And we take comfort in the fact that God has not turned the keys of the world entirely over to the free will of man or the free reign of the enemy. In his providence, he is working together all things towards a glorious end. And so don't fall into the trap of fatalism and say, well, if God has ordained the end, then what I do doesn't matter. That is the furthest thing from the truth. Yes, God has foreordained the end, but he has also foreordained the means to that end. And the means to that end is through his people praying, like we talked about last week. Don't think of prayer so much as trying to change the sovereign, hidden will of God, but it is accomplishing the sovereign will of God. 
It's changing you, and it's accomplishing the will of God. God has foreordained the end, but he's foreordained the means to that end, and it is through his people praying and preaching and evangelizing and gospel proclaiming and believing and discipling and bringing about the obedience of faith and loving our neighbors. These are the means that he has ordained to bring about his glorious ends. And even if you don't agree with me on all of this, I'm going to bet that when you pray for your neighbors, which you should be doing, I'm going to bet when you pray for your unbelieving family members that the Holy Spirit testifies to this truth that I'm talking about. Because I'm going to guess when you pray and your perfect divine prayer partner accompanies with you the Holy Spirit and you start asking for the salvation of a loved one or a family or a friend, I'm going to guess that the Spirit doesn't prompt you to pray in such a way of, well, God, I know you've done everything you can for them. Now it's up to them. Now, if the Spirit prompts you to Come talk to me. But I haven't heard anyone be prompted by the Spirit in that way. I know I hear when we start praying for our neighbors, we pray, God, change their heart. Do something, God, that only you can do. Open their eyes. Intervene. Humble them. Show them their sin. Show them their need for a Savior. The Spirit himself cries out with your spirit that it has to be a God thing to bring a dead life and to be alive. So pray. What did we learn last week? Pray always and do not lose heart. This is one of God's main means for accomplishing his will. Is to Pray. Those whom he predestined, he also called. If you're a believer in here at some point, the Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, you've, you've heard, maybe not audibly his voice, but you've felt the call. You've felt the, the hound of heaven pursuing your heart. And those whom he called, he is also justified. This is what we've been talking about all throughout the book of Romans, that we've been declared righteous with God. We are justified through faith, through trusting, believing, and depending upon Christ alone. And the beautiful thing about seeing justification in this context is, like I said before, it's not an isolated event, but it's part of this unbreakable plan of your salvation. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is where things are headed. Our groans are turning into glory. Our trials are becoming our testimonies. God is molding us into the image of Christ. And God in his providence has worked together this, his sovereign plan with the free choices of human beings to accomplish his purposes. And how and why and all that he does that is still somewhat of mystery. It should leave us in awe of our great God. And no greater example can be given of this than the, than the gospel itself. The good news of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I mean, think about this example of good news, of, of God using just evil and his sovereign plan and bringing it together, working for our good. Look no further than the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Acts 4, 27 and 28, it says, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. You see, what was happening in the gospel and in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ was that God in his providence was weaving together what evil spiritual powers were doing, what evil uh, uh, men were doing to carry out wicked acts by their own free will against the Lord in betraying him, arresting him, beating him and crucifying him. And God took that evil and yet there was a deeper providence going on here that the enemy was unaware of. And God took what the enemy meant for evil and he worked it for our good. To where we come every morning, not to, not to freak out about what's happening in the world, but we come in every morning to, to worship the Lord for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. God took what the, men, the enemy meant for evil and he has worked it for our good. Look to the cross. He did this at the cross. And he's done this 
all throughout human history. And one of the things Paul has been trying to teach us in Romans 8 is the absolute security and assurance that us as children of God should have. You should come out of Romans 8, which we still have another week of preaching Romans 8, but you should come out of Romans 8 embracing your identity as a child of God and feeling so secure and assured by that. Because our faith, our justification by faith, is not an isolated incident. It is part of this unbreakable chain of events and perfect plan of God. And all things that now come your way, you know that God will work all of them for his glory and your good. This is now the direction of your life in Christ. You have a powerful promise, and you are a part of an unbreakable plan as God is graciously overseeing the universe in such a way to bring about your ultimate good. Hudson Taylor, a great missionary to China in the 1800s, one of the means God has used to ensure that today there are a great multitude of Christians in China. But in the year 1870, he had a devastating year a year in which I'm sure the enemy thought would take him out of ministry and sink him into despair. In that year, one of his sons, Samuel, died in January. Then in July, um, his wife gave birth to another son who died two weeks after that birth. And then later that month, his wife died from an illness. Now, I know some of you have had a rough year, but this, this was a rough year for Hudson Taylor. And upon his wife passing away, he wrote in a letter to his mother these words. From my inmost soul, I delight in the knowledge that God does or permits all things and causes all things to work together for good to those who love him. Oftentimes shall we be helped and blessed if we bear this in mind, that Satan is servant and not master, and that he and wicked men incited by him are only permitted to do that which God by his determinate counsel and foreknowledge has before determined shall be done. It's a great comfort that stands the test of time, that is not something I came up with this week. This is a powerful promise that in 1870 was deeply comforting, and Hudson Taylor was finding delight in the Lord in this promise. And my prayer for us is that whatever is coming our way, that we would delight in the knowledge that God does or permits all things in his providence and causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him. Church, God gives us a glorious promise, and he has an unbreakable plan for those who love him. Therefore, may we see his gracious providence and have an unspeakable comfort and courage that he is working all things together for our good. And if he's working all things together for our good, then this changes how we see all things, church. Let's pray.